Hi, welcome back. Michelle Sparks with you. Illuminating anorexia, eating, self and body issues. Great to have your company. My guest today is dietitian, speaker, writer and host of the popular love food podcast, Julie Duffy Dillon RD. Julie is also the founding dietitian and owner in the group nutrition therapy practice, Birdhouse Nutrition Therapy. Julie, welcome to the program. It's just such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you. For our listeners, can you just tell us how did you get started or what sparked your interest in the eating disorder or emotional eating space? Oh, wow. Well, it, it certainly is a um, really twisted kind of journey that I had, but I started out working as a dietitian in a really traditional role where I worked in a hospital and then also as an outpatient uh, dietitian helping people lose weight. And what I found after just, a, you know, about a year or so that I was really good at telling people what to do, but I wasn't really well equipped to help people make changes. And I really, I got the sense that I was missing something. I was missing a lot of things. <laughs> and so I um, started working with families and children and I was like, wow, I really am not prepared. And so I started, um, I didn't really want to work with eating disorders though. That whole time I said, no, I don't want to do that. Um, which was really funny because I felt like a really strong feeling against it. But then I went and got a degree in counseling, and um, when I finished that, I started a, a job, and, you know, back as a dietitian, and um, that's where I, I first started working with eating disorders, and I thought, you know, I must have misinterpreted that strong feeling I had all along to not work with it because these are the people that I feel like really are what I'm supposed to be um, helping, and that's also where my, my approach to um, helping people make peace with food and, and explore healthy eating, where it also shifted to be, um, you know, more of focusing on helping people to experience compassion and permission yes. and finding it through finding health that way instead of fear and shame, um, which I feel like most weight loss types of recommendations are focused on that. Um, and that's where it evolved. So I'm really thankful to find um, eating disorders as a, place for me because I feel like it also shifted so many other things in my life that um, and helped me to be where I am today. That's a fantastic answer and I love what you're saying, you know, moving away from fear and shame and moving towards more compassion and taking that approach. It sounds too like, you know, just by going back and doing that extra um, study, it kind of brought something new to that your other field and enabled you to approach um, eating disorders from a much more holistic space and I know that's true for me too as a physio and then a counsellor because you start to, you bring, you just see the whole person don't you and I think that's what we're dealing with here, we're dealing with people as opposed to diagnoses, would you agree? Right, yeah, I feel like um, I understand the bigger picture more and yes. I think that's always how my brain has been wired anyway. I don't yes. think I'm a typical dietitian where I mean, my colleagues are usually really, really good with details and numbers um, and that's just not my strength. I'm someone that probably is more wired like a therapist anyway. Can you tell us about your, your approach to working with clients and does it differ according to the diagnostic presentation, whether they're anorectic or bulimic? How does, how does that work for you? What's your approach to working with clients? Well, you know, I basically approach um, people from a, a very um, consistent kind of philosophy where I want to meet them where they are 
and my goal is I, I want them to have permission to enjoy eating again um, yes. because I feel like enjoying food is part of how we're designed as humans to survive and to thrive and to connect to so many other things in our life. So that's my goal. And um, my way of the kind of the nutrition therapy that I do is um, often called intuitive eating or attuned eating or mindful eating, you know, this type of non-diet approaches that I think a lot of us are hearing more about, which is wonderful. And of course, where someone is on that journey, um, sometimes they're going to be ready for that just at face value. And then other times clients, um, because they're knee deep in an eating disorder, I will tweak it a bit and, um, I, and really, it's just meeting them where they are, you know, finding exactly where they are and then helping them to, um, I don't know, just discover that the, the past that they have. And I basically am like, I'm here with you on this journey. You decide where you want to go. And I have some experience with other people. I can tell you what they did. <laughs> and you get to decide yes. if you want to use them or not. And, you know, when you work with someone who is restricting with anorexia, I feel like I find out how they're eating and um, – I don't feel like hunger and fullness cues, which are relied on with intuitive eating, are going to be very accurate at that point. Yes. Um, yet I'm already talking about that. You know, I, I'm wondering, oh, so as we increase your meal plan, um, how are you experiencing it? You know, what's the good, the bad, the ugly? You know, what, what parts are you enjoying? What parts are feeling uncomfortable? What's your body telling you? And just uh, I encourage a dialogue with it. And then, oh, that's so good. Yeah, but I feel like it's part of what we need to do just to yes. kind of like get the synapses going to even consider the rest of the body instead of just what the brain is saying. And um, with binge eating, if someone's in that kind of experience, um, you know, finding out kind of just the patterns that go with that. And for a lot of my clients, they really, really want to stop binging Um and they think, well, if I just stop binging, everything will be better. But yet, when you peel back all the layers to it and, like, how the loop is continuing, it's not, it doesn't start with a binge. There's all these things before it. And one of the things, of course, is uh, some kind of restriction or diet. Exactly, um, yes. So I really yes. want to help them stop that part first. <laughs> That's, if I, if yes. I, I was, if, like, if you were a robot and I could program you, I would tell you to stop dieting. <laughs> exactly. You, you're a human, and you make your own choices. So yeah. Um, yeah, let's let's figure out what you want to do next. But I find when people stop dieting and hating on their body and working towards respect respecting it, that's when yes. the eating disorder doesn't have as much of a hold. Um, that's yeah. so true. So what a great answer. So you just really work with the, the person you see what's going on with them, you have a dialogue with them. And a, a very interesting question that, that springs to mind for me is that, you know, with, um, you know, we know that eating disorders exist on a spectrum with healthy eating and attitudes, attitudes and behaviours at one end and then clinical problems like eating disorders and obesity at the other and then problem eating somewhere in between, disordered eating. Is there a difference in your approach to working with someone who has um, binge eating disorder as or obesity, is there links or differentiation there, or can you comment on that? Yeah, I would love to. And, you know, the the first thing that I would say is in the approach that I use, um, we don't consider a person's body size to be be a disease because we consider um, our world is really diverse for, you know, different different races, um, different... um, heights, and we're all different weights, you know, and so size diversity is 
kind of uh, is something that I really um, admire about our world, and I don't want to change that. And so with that being said, you know, I'm, there's always been fat people, and I feel like there always will be fat people, yes. so I don't want to change that. And um, obesity is just a word that I, I don't use with my clients because I don't think of fatness as a disease. And I know that's quite controversial, um, but I also found um, really quickly working as a dietitian before I identified as a fat-positive dietitian is that um, there wasn't a way, there's no diet out there that helps people lose weight long-term um, for more than maybe 3 to 5% of the population. There are some diet industry studies that say as much as 20% of their um, research data shows long-term weight loss, but still like 80% of people yes. are not going to be able to keep this weight off. So um, whether or not someone thinks that um, a person's size is contributing to their health, we don't have an option that works anyway. Um, yes. All we know is yes. that dieting predicts weight gain and it predicts eating disorders. So I'm like, well, all Absolutely. it's doing is hurting. So, you know, so that's, that's something that I feel like is a really important piece of how I do things because whether I'm working with someone with anorexia, bulimia, or, or binge eating disorder, um, I recognize that they could be any size. So I've worked yes. with people who are very fat and have anorexia, which it happens. Um, and unfortunately, they don't get diagnosed very quickly because a lot of people are like, well, hey, you're losing weight, great job. Yeah, and they're in places where they're, it's deadly because um, I work with some clients who are two and 300 pounds and their heart rate's 40. And, you know, it's because they're, they're, their heart is starving, but yet it's hard for um, them to get attention from healthcare providers. <gasps> yes. This is something that could kill them. Um, because I think so, everybody in our world now, well, I, I don't want to say everyone, it just no. feels like that sometimes, but most people are quite fat phobic. So, you know, it's just, yes. that's such, fat. no, that's such a great point. Oh, wow, Julie, because so someone who's really um, carrying, they're a large weight, they could lose a substantial amount of weight, actually fall into the diagnostic criteria of anorexia, and yet they're not recognized because they're still, uh, you know, presenting as a large frame or, yeah, and yet yeah, they're well, doing, so, is that what you're saying? Their, their behavior yeah, is actually well, even, yeah. um, well, the thing I know, especially with anorexia, is that um, the sooner that we can help someone, the better they're going to recover. Yep. Um, and for someone who's at a, um, a weight that's more conventionally recognized as like someone with anorexia, uh, it's going to take on average 13 months for someone to find treatment to start, and, and I don't yeah. know if that's just data for the U.S. or for also uh, if it's a more of a worldly data point, but, um, but those of my clients who are in fat bodies, um, they will struggle much longer, and um, it's really quite sad because we know, yeah, the longer you struggle, the harder it can be, and the thing that's really great about anorexia nervosa's diagnostic criteria now, you know, before it used to be that someone had to be in a smaller body in order to get the diagnosis, but the new diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5, it even says, you know, just a smaller weight than they are expected to be. And so that is much more flexible, which I love. But um, yeah. it can, if, if people actually um, use that the way it's intended, I think it can catch more people before it gets to the point where their heart rates are in the 40s and we need to m make sure they're in a safe place in a hospital. Yeah, that's such a great point because the diagnostic criteria, as you said, has always had that, you know, well, I think, you know, back in the dim ages, I think when I was suffering, it was like 25% body mass yes. loss and then it was 15% and, and 
Right, yes. and you couldn't have your period, so no, guys yes. didn't get it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yes, yes. So I'm glad they did change it. And do you find um, the symptoms that are presenting, the fears, the, the you, I, I don't know if you get into this territory, but are you finding that the symptoms that present, the fears, the uh, inner dialogue, which we all have, but it gets to be pretty ramped up in the anorexia, not just with an inner critic, but like a host of voices can sort of get in the ring there. Do you, do you find that that is the same uh, experience for someone who is in a larger body experiencing that, um, those starvation symptoms compared to a smaller body? Yeah, it, it, I find it to be really honestly the same. Um, okay. And it, it took me a while to really trust that it was the same, I think, yes. because you know, I'm, I'm in the same world. And so for many years, I think um, my training has taught me that um, if someone's in a fat body that, and they're telling you they're eating you know, this small amount of food, well, you probably need to triple actually what they're eating because they're underreporting. And I feel like um, that was a really horrible thing to teach me because um, – you know, after like 20 or 30 people tell you that they're starving themselves, you know, they, wow, are they all wow. like, no, wow. not. Um, and, wow. you know, there's one, one condition in particular that was really interesting to me, and it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it's something that I really didn't want to work with medical diagnoses outside of eating disorders once yes. I really found the, the field. But then I started having all these clients with this PCOS, this polycystic ovarian syndrome. And what I found is that um, these were women who um, – were in much larger bodies, but yet eating like someone who is more stereotypically considered what you would expect with anorexia. And mm. if anything, their voices were even more extreme, more um, the eating disorder voice was even louder, if, if you can believe it, like, because wow. there's also this hormonal component at play with um, this um, condition, which makes every cell in their body um, crave food. And so um, the oh, anorexia starvation was causing OCD type of tendencies with their thinking with food, but then also this condition was their body was like driving them to want to eat. And so it was really complex and it's really scary, but, um, um, and those are a, definitely a group of people that go underdiagnosed with eating disorders. Yes. It happens a lot with them. Yes. And Julie, is one of the key elements to try and establish a regular meal plan, it doesn't, or are you, because you're talking about intuitive eating, so can you comment on that? Because the standard way most um, eating disorders are approached from a um, food point of view, I, I suppose, is to establish a regular meal plan and work around the trips and falls around that to sort of look at, look at that and explore that. And Can you comment on that? Yeah, I you know I feel like I'm willing to be unorthodox and do you know do it however the person needs it, but for the most part, when someone's in the throes of an eating disorder and really anyone, I want them to um, start to work towards self care with food. Um, so Marsha Heron is a dietitian who um, is known here in the U.S. for her work with eating disorders, and um, she has this rule of three that she talks a lot about, which is um, Make sure you eat every three hours, and you have yes. three meals and three snacks. Um, I think there's even like at least three different foods at the meal. You know, like she has all these yes. rules and three, and those yes. things that I think are handy. And for some of my clients, that's enough structure. And for other, yeah. people, they need more structure. And so we we just you just need to do what you need to do. And I I feel like that just points to like having a dietitian 
um, work with you on your team is such an amazing catalyst to recovery because um, there are many different paths to recovery with the food part, um, yes. and there may be a, a few that are best for you, and the, a dietitian who's skilled in it can really help you explore that. And so meal planning is certainly something that we do in our office, and um, you know it can be as much as like having certain food groups at each meal, um, or it could just be um, having three meals and three snacks. You know, it, it can kind of vary, but... Um, and for other folks, it's also, um, you know, monitoring hunger and fullness as, a, as, a, you know, as they're moving along with that. And, you know, after um, a while after the body's chemistry kind of calms down and it just is in a healthier place, the hunger and fullness will more um, dictate what their, or not necessarily dictate, but it'll be more accurate according to what their body needs. So we can slowly walk away from that meal plan if, if they're wanting to. Yes, and isn't that a, that's just such a big key, isn't it? That that trust in the body, re-establishing that that the trust has just disappeared, hasn't it? You're looking at numbers and and uh, schedules, but the very opposite is is to learn to trust the body and the internal cues, and that's such a journey, isn't it? To help people along well, that is, path, must be. Yeah. It's an amazing journey, and I feel like my clients are the bravest people on the planet because yeah. everything in their in their biology is telling them not to trust it. But the thing that's really um, incredible about where I sit, you know, when I meet with clients, is that I see how their relationship with food mirrors how they're relating to other people and other things in life and, and yes. themselves. So yes. when I'm sitting with a client and they're eating a donut or we're drinking some soda or you know doing some kind of food challenge of some sort um, and they're taking that risk, even though it feels like they're doing something wrong, and, but they're taking it because they know that it's the right thing to do to challenge it, I know it's also going to translate into other areas too. And yes. they're healthy risks in other areas, so it's really, it's really cool how over time those two, you know, the food and then the not food part of the eating disorder, how they kind of help each other to work towards that flexibility. So true. It's about the food and it's not about the food, isn't it? It's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's that uh, wonderful um, relationship, body, self, and yeah, just self-care, compassion, all those things that you've touched on so beautifully. Julie, one of the questions I'd love to ask you, we, veganism is a big trend here amongst high school age girls and young women, particularly in here in Australia, I notice it a lot. Can I just ask your comments on whether you think people can be healthy on a vegan diet? Any comments about that? Well, I think there are many different kind of eating plans that people can eat and follow and still be healthy. Veganism is one where I feel like you almost have to be a dietitian <laughs> in order to do it without going yeah. bonkers. It, it, I feel like it's complicated and um, it can be tough to get everything someone needs, especially yes. if they are young and at the mercy of like meal planning from their parents um, or if they're in college and you know using the cafeteria or you know something like that to rely on their food. And I think. Um, Veganism also has a very like black and white kind of perfectionistic tone to it. What can happen and what happens for a lot of people I work with is that they end up exploring veganism for some really positive reasons, you know, like ethical, sustainability, or, you know, just some reasons that they feel are really yes. near and dear yes. to their heart, which, I mean, I'm, I would never knock that. If someone has a religious or ethical reason for eating a certain way, I'm not going to step in the way of that. That feels like uh, yeah, that's not of course. my role. Um, no. 
No, but um, but for a lot of people, what ends up happening is that um, it becomes very inflexible and it ends up hurting them. And um, there is a few people online I have found that have talked about their journey in veganism and how it opened up the doors for their eating disorder. Now, it doesn't do that for everyone, um, but I, we don't always know who's at risk for an eating disorder because we don't exactly. have access to their mm. DNA. So, you know, if my son or daughter one day wants to be a vegan, it's going to perk my ears up because of that. Um, yes. And you know, I would want to be extra special, careful with it. But there are some people who um, are vegan and they're doing it and they're their body is, you know, it just is where it needs to be, and it's fine. And um, those are also people who eat an avocado every single day because they need to make yes. sure they need to get enough fat. You know, there's um, certain things that they they make sure they're getting enough carbohydrate. Um, they're getting, you know, they're they're making sure that they're getting what they need. And if someone follows something like veganism, you know, because there's so much emphasis on meal planning and having to think about it more, those are people that I would hope had a very secure relationship with food before yes. that even started because that, if, if, yeah. you don't have, if you don't have food security whether because you don't have enough money or because you're always dieting or because restriction was part of your environment at home well then putting that extra layer of complicated food rules because of veganism is something that could lead someone down the path of disordered eating or eating disorder yes but something i would add to that something that I think is really neat is there is a trend that I'm hearing about for people who are not necessarily saying that they have to call themselves a vegan or they don't have to be and, and still like want to eat vegan food, you know, or they don't have to be like vegan all the time. Wonderful. Yes. You know? Because yes. what if you had vegan meals a couple times a week? Or for right now, while you're a college student, you know, trying to have as much vegan food that you can get your hands on, but also yes. Giving yourself permission, I'm eating at the dining hall every day and I have to eat chicken because <laughs> that's all they have. Yes. And, and I think, you know, not letting yourself get hung up on the label could be yes. really, really wonderful and also help someone explore that cultural side of veganism. Um, I yes. really am loving that kind of trend right now. I think that's just wonderful. Yep, and, and also just there's, there seems to be a lot more options and a lot more like I don't know about there in the states but here there's so many wonderful you know if you go out the choices are so much better now in terms of your ability to choose food that does feel good in your body feels good in yourself and you can just sit comfortably with and be you know it, it tastes good and it's lots of variety there's lots of different pulses and fruit and veg and you know the choices it just seems to be a much nicer place to eat out these days I find. Yeah, I yeah. think it can be, especially if you don't put yourself in this, like, corner of, like, I can only have this. Yeah, and, um, rigidity, like, well, rigidity and, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, rigidity and, and uh, restriction, whether it's emotional or physical, is kind of triggers us in the other direction, doesn't it? It's, it becomes really mm -hmm. problematic. It does. But, it um, does. Julie, can you tell us, um, what do you think are the biggest roadblocks to recovery? I feel like when people are totally knee-deep in some kind of perfectionism, whether yes. it's eating the perfect way or doing recovery the perfect way um, or, you know, perfectionism and the other ways that we hear it. That's a huge roadblock for recovery. Yes. I also, um, if someone is so fearful of fat, I think is another, whether it's the food fat or the body fat, I think those yes. are also roadblocks to recovery. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I feel like, taking the scale out of um, 
measuring our health, you know, especially yes. for larger bodies, I think is something that is really um, health-promoting for everyone, what, no matter what type of eating disorder they have, because um, fat in food or fat on our bodies are, is not something that we should be running from. It's something that how our body is designed. You know, every cell in our body has fat and yes. needs it. So those are, those are some roadblocks that I think can keep people really, really, really stuck. Yes, great, great, great comment, great answer. And finally, Julie, top three tips for someone struggling in this space. So the first thing I want clients to know from me is that um, I really, really am hoping that they can stop fighting their body. Um, I I just want them to, like, put down their, like – their um, battle gear, you know, and their shields and all, and then the ammo and just put it down, you know, and um, just stop fighting it. And let's just start there. And what I, I'm not expecting, I would love for my clients to love their body and to totally accept it, but I know that that's not always what they're willing to do, especially from the beginning. And so another thing, that, another tip is that I, I really want people to um, – respect their body and you know what I think happens when we respect it it's acknowledging well I don't love it maybe I don't accept it but it's my body it's my earth suit you know it's 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 something that holds my soul it deserves respect so when I'm hungry I need to eat and when I'm feeling satisfied it's okay to stop and if I don't do that if I make mistakes in there it's okay because I can do it try again next time yeah I think they're all really respectful um and then from there, another kind of tip is that I want people then to be curious about what their body is trying to communicate to them. You know, yes. as they're getting reconnected, to try to really be curious, but especially like compassionate with that curiosity. Because if, if someone can let their brain get used to being compassionately curious about what drives their, their behaviors, whether it's eating disorder behaviors or just plain old food behaviors, um, I think they'll find themselves closer to a place where they could say, hey, I'm in a healthy place. You know, this is some, a place that's physically and emotionally healthy for me. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great tips, Julie. Thank you. They're, they're fantastic tips. And um, so I'd like to just summarize them, but I'll have to wait till I listen to that back and then I'll just put, <laughs> yeah. that, in the, put that in the show notes, but they're great tips. <laughs> Julie, it's well, been just such, such a wonderful uh, opportunity to, to speak with you and um, any last thing you'd like to say to our listeners before we, we say goodbye here? Well, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to come talk to your listeners. Um, it's really been a privilege and um, I hope that they can find their way to reconnect and find permission to um, enjoy eating again. Absolutely. And on that note, Julie Duffy Dillon, thank you so much. Well, that wraps up a great interview with Julie Duffy Dillon and The link to her podcast and also the show notes will be up on my website, michellesparks.com. Feel free to um, shoot some feedback and questions. And until next time, travel well. 